is Our American Stories. The first state to recognize Christmas as a holiday was Louisiana in 1837. By 1860, only 13 states recognized Christmas as a legal holiday. Five years later, by 1865, that number had gone from 13 to 31. What happened? The Civil War happened. The nostalgic yearning for Christmas at home during the war happened. What also happened were the little gestures that occurred on the battlefield during unofficial Christmas truces between the blue and the gray. So after the war, one of the ways President Lincoln saw to reconcile the nation was through Christmas. In 1870, Christmas was made a national holiday. Let's now take a look and see what's under the hood of this story. Sleigh bells ring, are you listening? Ah, Christmas. Up goes the tree, on go the lights. An exciting season of presents and parties only a Scrooge could hate. But where did all the traditions start? Why do we bring huge evergreen trees into our homes? How did Santa get the red suit, the sleigh, and the eight reindeer? And what about Rudolph? Today we are going to pull back the curtain to unveil the hidden history of our cherished Christmas holiday. These days, cities and towns seem to be dressing up earlier and earlier for the Christmas season. There are Santas at every shopping mall from coast to coast. And there are lights, lots and lots of lights. We liked lights. As little kids, I think we all jumped in the family car and drove through different neighborhoods to see the lights. The first Christmas lights were invented in 1882 by Edison Company Vice President Edward Johnson. Later, General Electric offered a string of 24 bulbs for $12, which is equal to $280 today. This bright idea is often credited to a New England telephone worker. The real inspiration came from his job where he worked for the telephone company and it was, you know, the little light bulbs in the early telephone switchboards. That gave him the idea for what we now know as Christmas lights. What child is the Christmas story is one we all know. After a rude refusal by a local innkeeper, Mary and Joseph bedded down in a barn in Bethlehem where they gave birth to a son, the Son of God. Those are the biblical origins of Christmas. But centuries before Jesus walked the earth, early Europeans were celebrating light and birth in the darkest days of winter. Every December on the shortest day in the year, when the earth was tilted furthest from the sun, came the winter solstice. It marked the darkest day of the year, but also the time when the promise of longer days gave cause to celebrate. To honor the occasion, ancient Norse tribes held a 12-day festival they called Yule. You have the crops brought in, you have the meat being slaughtered, you slaughter some of the farm animals because you can't feed them during the dark days of winter. So there's a lot of meat on hand. The beer has been made. It's perfect time for a feast. Fathers and sons dragged home the biggest log they could find and set it on fire. This Yule log burned for all 12 days of the feast and they brought evergreens, furs, and holly into their homes. Over the centuries, the concept grew, 
and later it was co-opted into our modern Christmas tree custom. Today, picking out a tree is a family tradition. And in any given year, American farmers are growing 350 million trees on 15,000 Christmas tree farms. That's one Christmas tree for every man, woman, and child in the country. Here's Nigel Manley, director of the Roxas State Christmas Tree Farm in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. The biggest thing that I've heard from customers is, particularly with the balsam fir, when you open the door when you come home from work, you can smell that tree in the house. And that scent is what makes Christmas for them. That's the biggest thing for the Christmas trees. So what does any of this have to do with the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago? After all, that is where the story of Christmas all begins. But how do we know what we know about the birth of Jesus? We actually have two different sources from the New Testament for the Nativity. We have the Gospel of Matthew and we have the Gospel of Luke. They don't refer to one another, they may not even have known about each other, and they tell us two different sets of things about what happened for Jesus' birth. And what we tend to do is we put these two stories together to get a kind of full picture that we call the Nativity. Matthew's Gospel gives us the Star of Bethlehem and the Wise Men. And no, contrary to popular belief, there were not three of the wise men. The Bible only mentions that they brought three gifts for the baby Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the exact number of wise men is not included in the scriptures. There's a kind of symbolic value to these gifts. What they're doing is they're bringing really, really precious goods to honor this child with a very humble birth. And there's a, a message there about how we need to recognize this birth isn't really humble at all because this is a king being born. This is the first example of Christmas gift giving. But nowhere in the New Testament is it recorded when this birth actually happened. One of the few things that all scholars seem to agree on is that Jesus wasn't born in the wintertime. Now I know that's a terrible thing to say, but let me explain. The early followers of Jesus Christ weren't concerned with marking his birthday, partially because they expected his imminent return. So why bother creating a birthday? But this didn't prevent early Christian scholars and present-day historians from trying to speculate when he was born. The one thing you will get from their estimates on Christ's birth is that they all occur in the springtime. And that makes a great deal of sense, because one of the few details you'll find in the Gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ is that it was at a time when the shepherds were with their flocks in the fields. That could not have been in December, because what we do know about the traditions of ancient Judea is that at that time shepherds took their flocks indoors so they wouldn't get cold at night, starting in November, and they wouldn't bring them back out again until March. So how did Jesus end up with a birthday on December 25th? Long before Jesus was born, the Romans celebrated many pagan holidays, particularly in December, and these end-of-year festivities set the stage for our modern Christmas holiday. One Roman holiday was Saturnalia, which began on December 17th and was a series of parties that would last anywhere from three to five or maybe seven days. And you can think of it as sort of a, a big office party, but in togas. And only three laws governed Romans during the holiday. Number one, 
all businesses should be closed except bakeries, cookeries, and those that tend to sport and solace and delight. Number two, anger, resentment, and threats are strictly forbidden. Number three, no discourse shall either be composed or delivered except it be witty and lusty, conducing to mirth and jollity. The second party is New Year's. It was a five-day party, and it was quite enjoyable as well. And then in between Saturnalia and New Year's, there was already a birthday celebration for a Roman-related god on December 25th. That god, Mithras, was born and honored on December 25th. After Christianity became Rome's official religion in the 4th century, leaders chose to absorb pagan traditions rather than outlaw them. But in a prelude to those who complain today about what a shame it is that we don't celebrate Christmas the way they used to, that Christmas has been commercialized. Well, 16 centuries ago, Archbishop Gregory of Constantinople urged that the Christmas celebration be conducted after a heavenly and not an earthly manner. And he warned his congregants against feasting to excess, dancing, and crowning the doors. But as the church continued to absorb various ancient traditions, what emerged were two experiences of Christmas, one sacred and one secular. Each of these Christmases also had their own separate music, just like we have today. You have hymns in the church, they're sacred music, and they're sung in Latin. And you find gradually the development in the 12th century of Christmas carols. And Christmas carols are sung in the vernacular. They're not in Latin. They're languages everybody knows. And people enjoy these songs, and people sing them together. And very quickly, there gets to be the tradition of not singing these songs in church. But medieval caroling was not just about caroling. It was about drinking. At every door, revelers begged for a gulp from the household punch bowl, getting drunker with every note they sang. So what Christmas looks like doesn't look an awful lot like a sort of solemn, biblically-oriented holiday. It looks like something else. It looks like it's always looked, frankly. It's this kind of festival of celebration and revelry. All of this celebration and merriment didn't sit well, especially after the Protestant Reformation. One of the hallmarks of Martin Luther's message was to clear away from the entire church calendar all the feasts and saints days. And Christmas was one of the many feast days in the Catholic Church, and Luther tried to get rid of almost all of them. But there were just too many people who enjoyed St. Nick's December 6th feast day. Besides feasting, this day also involved gift giving. So what Martin Luther suggested was this. Instead of telling kids about St. Nicholas bringing gifts, they would tell the kids that the gifts were brought by the Christ child himself. How do you say Christ child in Luther's German language? Christkindl. That's right, Christkindl. Well, Luther's attempts failed, but Christkindl got swallowed up by Christmas and got transformed into Kris Kringle. Yet another endearing name for the big man in the red suit. So why did Luther declare a war on Christmas? He did because it wasn't mentioned in the Bible. One of the messages of the Reformation was go back to the Bible. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. 
Part of the logic behind that argument was expressed by an American Puritan of a later generation, Ezra Stiles, who was one of the first presidents of Yale College, who said this, Had it been the will of Christ that the anniversary of his nativity should have been celebrated, he would have at least let us know the day. By the 17th century, Christian reformers were losing patience with the rowdier Christmas traditions. They decided to ban Christmas altogether. There's a kind of backlash against Christmas. Among Protestant groups, you find a desire to not celebrate Christmas, a repudiation of Christmas as kind of a Catholic invention, frankly, something that the Catholic Church had allowed happen. In 1652, England banned Christmas. Ministers who preached about the Nativity on Christmas Day could be imprisoned. Churches risked fines if they tried to decorate their buildings. The law said that shops must stay open on Christmas as if it were any other business day. Now this was the law, but nobody said it was popular. Although people believed the Puritans had a lot of religious substance on their side, they enjoyed Christmas. But Christmas would have an equally hard time in New England during the early 17th century. Pious settlers from England looked upon Christmas with suspicion. The newly formed Puritan colony of Massachusetts wanted no part of the holiday. And in 1659, it banned Christmas too. The Puritans of New England were very well aware of the pagan associations with the celebrations of the winter solstice, and they wished to avoid any kind of association with that. One Puritan commentator said that Christmas was chastity's shipwreck. And another one in Boston said that men did more dishonor to Christ on the 12 days of Christmas than they did the entire 12 months of the year. During the Revolutionary War, America had still not yet embraced Christmas, which in one instance was a blessing. One of the key and most inspiring battles of the Revolution was the Battle of Trenton. This battle has been immortalized in the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware River as he boldly stands at the front of the boat next to an American flag. Washington made that crossing on Christmas of 1776. One of the primary reasons that the Americans were able to prevail was because they surprised the Hessians, the German mercenaries who worked for the British, and the British at Trenton, New Jersey. Because they were all drunk, they had been celebrating Christmas, but the Americans did not. As the American colonies spread down throughout the southern coast, the settlers were less enthusiastic about banning Christmas because a great many of them were Catholic immigrants. And once Protestants got exposed to Christmas, they found it very attractive. By the mid-1700s, they had adopted many of their European Christmas traditions, keeping the rowdy Christmas behavior of the past alive. Early Republic records are full of instances where people in, you know, a gentleman's home in Virginia, they're having a nice Christmas dinner when the local rowdies get word of it and pound on the door and they go through this very ancient ritual of give us some food and drink or we're going to throw rocks through your windows. And so there's, both those traditions are, are still there. But as America matured, so did its Christmas customs. Respectable middle-class Americans wanted to take the rowdy Christmas, the public Christmas that took place outdoors, and move it indoors. I mean, these are people who had property. They were afraid of destruction. They were afraid of losing things that they owned. So they want to take this public rowdy event 
and take it from the streets and bring it into the home and make the focus of Christmas around the family, around this private gathering that takes place in the house. This effort was most deliberate and most successful in rapidly expanding New York City. The city that never sleeps has shaped the modern secular Christmas more than any other city in the world. And it's really because of the efforts of two very gifted New Yorkers who lived there in the 1800s. They would reinvent old world Christmas customs to create our modern American holiday. And they would mold our image of jolly old Saint Nick. New York in the 1800s was a city that was alive with change. The population was booming. There was new industry. There were the new stores that were growing up that provided the foundation for what became the commercialization of Christmas. But it was not only a city that was alive with change, it was also a city that was alive with new ideas. Clement Clark Moore, a New York professor of Oriental and Greek literature, who helped create New York's Chelsea neighborhood, and designed St. Peter's Episcopal Church, had an idea that would change Christmas forever. In 1822, he wrote a 56-line poem he called A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known today as The Night Before Christmas. Almost single-handedly, he created the modern American version of Christmas. What's really interesting about Moore's poem is it distilled various traditions in the early 19th century and put them all together and added his own, Moore's own imaginings. Moore's poem becomes a path-breaking moment, a watershed in how Christmas is celebrated. Moore's subject was Santa, as we know him today. His inspiration? Two legendary Christmas figures of the old world. One was Saint Nicholas, a 4th century bishop renowned for gift-giving, legendary for leaving presents in stockings. The other was Sinterklaas, the Dutch version of Saint Nicholas. Sinterklaas had merged a bit with Odin, the Norse pagan god of Yule, who flew through the sky on an eight-legged horse. Before the mid-19th century, Santa Claus comes in different shapes and sizes. He arrives, you know, on a boat, on a horse, uh, on a sleigh, and all of that sort of codified and narrowed down in America, largely in New York City. Both old world legends were rich in details, many of which Moore chose to leave out. One omission was a bizarre, dark, devil-like sidekick of St. Nicholas named Krampus, or Black Peter and Krampus brought a switch to punish naughty children, or worse. They had horns, long red tongue, covered with fur, tail, and hoof, and he would come into the room right after St. Nicholas. And one scene in particular shows two little boys cowering, because outside the door is this devil figure, Krampus. But Clement Clark Moore St. Nick embodied only good. Moore introduced several new characteristics for Santa. He dressed him in American fur, gave him a pipe, a huge belt, and portrayed him not as a priest, but a jolly dimpled elf with a twinkle in his eye. On his back he toted a sack full of toys for the children of the house. Moore also gave him a sleigh that he flew through the sky led not by a horse, but by eight reindeer. 
but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. <laughs> Each with its own name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. On Comet, on Cupid, on Dunder and Blitzen. Moore's poem, which has become the most famous poem in the English language, enthralled 19th century Americans. It created a new kind of Christmas, neither rowdy nor religious, but centered on home and family. In the decades that followed, artists would expand on Moore's imagery, but his would be the vision that would endure. One interesting thing about the poem is that book editors actually changed the last line. In Moore's original version, it was, Happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. Most books change happy to merry. As iconic as Clement Clark Moore's Santa was, he still wasn't the fully formed Kris Kringle we know today. His Santa had no North Pole workshop, no elves, no letters from kids, and no naughty and nice list. Where did these details come from? The credit goes to another New Yorker, illustrator Thomas Nast. He took more Santa and produced the definitive version for generations to come. Thomas Nast is one of the great illustrators of the 19th century. A lot of the images that we see today, he created. When you think about uh, the donkey and the elephant for the Democratic and Republican Party, he created it. The image of Uncle Sam that we've all come to know is a creation of Thomas Nast. And he also is the person who gave us our modern version of Santa Claus. In 1862, one of America's major magazines, Harper's Weekly, commissioned Nast to draw its Christmas illustrations. He transformed the Moore's jolly old elf into someone taller and grander. So he becomes your grandfather. Gives him the full flowing white beard, which is the image of a wealthy person in, in the Victorian uh, world. Um, he was wearing a red coat with white trim, black boots, the buckled belt, the pipe. Nass' image of Santa became indelible. And with every Christmas grew richer in its detail. Santa, one could say, has become America's national saint. Nass does this year after year. He creates lots of the things we associate with Santa Claus. The list of naughty and nice, living at the North Pole, and that becomes the image of Santa Claus. And by the mid-19th century, the Christmas tree, a variation of the ancient Norse custom, became the centerpiece to the family-oriented American Christmas, all because of one picture. On December 23, 1848, the London News published an image of the young Queen Victoria and Prince Albert with their family assembled around a Christmas tree, part of Albert's German tradition. England fell in love with it immediately. Two years later, this same image of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert was republished in a very popular American magazine with a couple of alterations. They took out Queen Victoria's crown and took off Prince Albert's mustache so that they looked a little bit more American. And it was a way of sort of essentially telling middle-class Americans who bought this magazine that this would be a tradition, this is a tradition worthy of your home. The Christmas tree had officially arrived in America. By 1856, President Franklin Pierce was putting one in the White House. In 1939, 
copywriter Robert L. May was creating a whole new holiday icon, a red-nosed reindeer named Rudolph. The Rudolph figure is created for Montgomery Ward Department Store in Chicago. And they want to have essentially kind of a handout, a Christmas favor, if you will. So he writes a 38-page pamphlet in verse about this woebegone reindeer. Originally calls him Rolo the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Towards the end, they decide to need something with a little more punch, so it becomes Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And it's a huge hit. Ten years later, in 1949, May's brother-in-law, songwriter Johnny Marks, set the Rudolph poem to music. He wrote the song and gave it to Gene Autry, and Gene Autry didn't like it. He didn't even want to record it. And Gene Autry's wife said, no, this is a good song. You need to record it. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, but do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Autry finally agreed to record the song, but only as a B-side to one of his records. It became the biggest hit of Autry's career. Another classic Christmas song from around the same time was written by a Jewish immigrant from Russia, Irving Berlin, and sung by Bing Crosby. This Christmas song is the most beloved and celebrated song ever written. It's a song that was heard for the very first time on Christmas 1941, just 18 days after Pearl Harbor was bombed. The song is White Christmas. I'm of a white Christmas Just like the one so the song doesn't really catch on. It's the spring of 1942. We've just gone to war, but it catches on in the fall of 42, which is when America is really approaching its one-year mark of being at war. And these now hundreds of thousands, soon to be millions of GIs, are going to be spending their first Christmas away from home. And that's where that song has that real heartstring-pulling, nostalgic feel to it, that the record sales just skyrocket in October, November, December of uh, 1942. White Christmas is the most successful single ever released, and it has been for more than 60 years. According to the Guinness World Records, the version sung by Bing Crosby is the best-selling single of all time, with estimated sales in excess of 100 million copies worldwide. The homespun values at the heart of White Christmas were what Americans at home and those fighting abroad longed for. In 1946, Americans found those values in the reigning classic of all Christmas-themed movies, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life started life uh, as a short story called The Greatest Gift by uh, Philip Van Doren Stern. And it wound up in the hands of Frank Capra, who had just come back from World War II, uh, where he had shot the Why We Fight series of, of propaganda films for the U.S. Army. The Oscar-winning director crafted a sentimental masterpiece about a man named George Bailey, a man who sees the world as it would be had he never been born. Mother, what do you want? Mother, this, this is George. I, I thought sure you'd remember me.
The impact this movie has had on the movie industry can be seen in every Steven Spielberg film. For inspiration, Spielberg has said that he watches It's a Wonderful Life before starting any new film. And whenever he goes on location for a new film, he takes along a copy of It's a Wonderful Life to show his cast how movies should be made. And it also must be said, the kiss between Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed is hands down the greatest kiss in movie-making history. Now you listen to me. I don't want any plastics, I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... George, George, George. The broadcast success of It's a Wonderful Life proved that Christmas and television were a powerful combination. By the 1960s, baby boomers were enjoying a golden age of holiday TV. There was a golden age of Christmas specials that began about in the mid-60s and went into the mid-70s. These specials were aimed specifically at children, although were sophisticated enough to entertain the adults that were in the room. After Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol in 1962 came a flurry of animated specials, but in 1965, one Christmas special featuring a little round-headed kid seeking the true meaning of Christmas topped them all. Here's Lee Mendelson, the executive producer for A Charlie Brown Christmas. In 1965, we got a call from the McCann Erickson Advertising Agency who represented Coca-Cola. They said, have you and Mr. Schultz ever thought of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas show? And I lied and said, absolutely. So I called uh, Sparky, our nickname for Mr. Schultz, and said, um, I think I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's something you're going to write tomorrow. Mendelssohn and animator Bill Melendez had to create an animated special in just six months. They made radical creative choices, like using child actors for the voices. Here's Peter Robbins, the voice of Charlie Brown. I was nine years old. They were eight years old, seven years old. We're all in one recording studio, bouncing off the walls, playing with the drums and stuff, because it was a recording studio where, like, the Doors recorded their albums. The work progressed, but time was running out. We did end up finishing it just like a week before it went on the air. Then we took it to CBS, and the three fellows there didn't like it at all, and they said, we're going to have to run it because it's scheduled for four days from now, but, you know, nice try, but it, it just doesn't work. So as we went through these minefields, it's amazing it ever even got on the air. One issue that concerned everyone was Schultz's insistence that the show quote the Bible. One of us said, you know, do you really think we can, you know, animate a kid reading from the Bible? Do you think we can get, get this through? And I remember he said at the time, well, if we don't do it, who will? Who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. He Bill staged it in a very, very simple format. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And the way that wonderful actor, Chris Shea, read it, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, 
goodwill toward men. It became, you know, one of the really indelible moments, probably in animated history. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Then, in 1983, author and humorist Gene Shepard immortalized his childhood in an autobiographical account of One Boy's Christmas. Here's screenwriter of The Christmas Story and the voice of Ralphie as an adult, Gene Shepard, telling us about his real-life childhood encounter with Santa that inspired the most memorable scene in the movie. You know, I'd been thinking for weeks what I wanted for Christmas. I figured the best thing to do is to tell Santa Claus about that. And I looked up at that Santa Claus, and he had these big, watery blue eyes and a huge beard and all, and he's looking me right in the eye. And he was so impressive that my mind went blank. Ho, 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 then what's your name, little boy? It's like if all of a sudden you're, you're sitting on the president's lap, and he says, what would you like me to pass in legislation, Sonny? I mean, your mind's going to go blank. You can't remember any of this stuff. And so at that point, Santa Claus looked at me and he says, All right, <laughs> how about a football, kid? How about a nice uh, football? A football? I wanted a BB gun. <laughs> so he pushed me off his lap, and this elf grabbed me and threw me down a slide that went down into the snow. And I laid there for a minute, and I knew that I was not a fit person to talk to the great. Santa Claus was obviously a star. These days, the glow from our holiday lights and television sets help banish the cold, dark winter nights the way the Yule logs and bonfires once did a thousand years ago. People make up holidays. Traditions are invented. But there are uses for those cultural tropes that stay with us for centuries. There's something about the deeper meaning there that is singing to our bones and we hear it and we think, yes, that's the tradition and that's what I want to celebrate. For as long as we can remember, we bring in our greens and turn on the lights. We hang our stockings and sing our carols in church and in the streets amidst the chaos. We even find time to rejoice at the birth of a child 2,000 years ago. Something touches American somewhere down deep in his belly button about Christmas. He can't really explain what it is about Christmas that he enjoys so much. <laughs> he just knows that when all those red and green lights go up, you know, on the street, and you see Santa Clauses walking around with their bells, if something happens to you, you enjoy it. Now, you can be cynical all you want, but you still enjoy it. From our family at Our American Stories, we'd like to say to you and yours, Merry Christmas to you all, and to all, a good night. And this is Our American Stories, and again, that's all Greg Hengler and all the folks he works with putting these great pieces together. And by the way, one thing that really struck me through the piece, and I'm sure you had your favorite, but Irving Berlin was a Jewish man and he was from Russia. And this one man gave us two great American standards. A Russian wrote God Bless America, and a Jew wrote White Christmas. And this truly 
is the most American thing about America. That I could say a sentence like that. We can only say something like that in this great country. And so we talk about Christmas. We talk about America here on Our American Stories. Have a blessed Christmas. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. stories and we're celebrating Christmas with, well, great Christmas stories. Up now, a story about how Christmas lights came to be. Today's marvelous over-the-top holiday light displays prove that we've come a long way since the days of hanging candles on a tree. If you thought stringing popcorn for hours could get tedious, imagine fumbling around trying to attach a multitude of lit candles to a tree using melted wax and pins. Relaxed. It's a controlled bird. 18th century revelers, eager to keep their holiday spirits bright, needed to keep a bucket of water or sand close by. A few inventors of the time tried to figure out the best way to do this safely, including clip-on candle holders with an attached tin cup to catch the melted wax. Despite the dangers of mixing open flame with drying out trees, candles would remain a Christmas staple into the early 20th century. In 1882, Thomas Edison may have been the father of the incandescent light bulb, but he wasn't the father of the electric Christmas tree. Edison had ditched the tree and strung lights around his lab instead, hoping to gain a contract to provide electricity to Manhattan. Meanwhile, Edward H. Johnson, the vice president of Edison's electric light company, decorated his tree with 80 specially made red, white, and blue bulbs that he displayed in the window of his Fifth Avenue home. The local press ignored the event, but the festive lights earned a mention in a Detroit newspaper. That was all Johnson needed to earn the title of Father of the Electric Christmas Tree. By 1895, the public still didn't trust electric lights as a safe alternative to candles. But that all changed after President Grover Cleveland featured the first electrically lit White House Christmas tree. With more than 100 multicolored bulbs, the brightly colored tree got America's attention and illuminated Christmas trees soon became all the rage, if you could afford one. The cost of renting a generator and paying a wireman to light up your tree came with a lofty price tag of $300, which was the equivalent of about two grand today. As a result, the electrically lit tree remained a sight seen primarily at high society parties. After Christmas tree candles caused a tragic New York City fire in 1917, a teen by the name of Albert Sadaka thought to repurpose the white novelty lights his family produced, switching them over to colored bulbs and creating the first Christmas lights safe for widespread use in the home. Young Albert continued to corner the Christmas light market, eventually forming Noma Electric Company, National Outfit Manufacturers Association, in 1925, which became the largest Christmas light manufacturer in the world. 
With fears for subpar lights fading and the technology becoming affordable enough for the middle class, demand grew for the new shapes and sizes of light-up displays, including flowers, snowmen, saints, and even Santa himself. Thus was born the Outdoor Light Show, which still burns brightly in towns across America. Organized by Frederick Nash in Altadena, California, the first public outdoor electric Christmas light display turned Santa Rosa Avenue into Christmas Tree Lane. With the exception of World War II, it has been lit continuously every year since. Not to be outdone, in 1923, President Calvin Coolidge lit the National Christmas Tree with about 3,000 lights. In 1944, keeping with wartime blackout regulations, the Rockefeller Center Christmas trees, there were actually three of them that year, remained unlit, as did every outdoor Christmas tree in the entire city. Organizers made up for it the following year by using six ultraviolet light projectors to make 700 fluorescent globes on that year's tree to appear to glow in the dark. By 1970, the introduction of the mini-light, which continues to dominate the market today, created a revolution in decorative lighting. The mini-bulbs offer high-impact, low-cost lighting and use a lower wattage per strand. In addition, the rise of suburban tract housing created an easy structure to decorate. Americans became more and more competitive and put more and more strain on their wall sockets by trying to outdo their neighbors in building the most elaborate home displays. Nothing illustrates this better than National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, when Clark Griswold, played by Chevy Chase, turns his house into a mess of extension cords in his insane quest for the perfect 250-strand display. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards, and I have a bit of a head cold, so it makes my voice go low, low. It's making my voice sound better, actually. It's booming. I can, I can feel the walls rattling as I say this right now. Now. Eh, it's not that good. Not that good, kid. Come on. Yeah, this is Our American Story, celebrating Christmas all week and great Christmas stories and Christmas music.
is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories of songs. We did Georgia on My Mind, the Hoagie Carmichael song, and how that became a Ray Charles song. There Goes My Life, the Kenny Chesney song. Light My Fire, which was my favorite, and Jesse's, how that came to be, and the musical inspirations behind that song, which were part jazz and part classical. And Ray Manzarek walks us through the whole thing. It's just terrific. And right now, because it's Christmas time, this story will kill you. You've all seen the video. David Bowie and Bing Crosby together, singing The Little Drummer Boy. Well, what was that like? The glam rock king, androgynous, post-sexuality, post-70s, post-modern, meets the classic crooner from the 30s and 40s. What was that like when they first met? How did this song come to be? Well, we love to ask questions. And then I send my great team out to get some answers. They script it up. And here is the answer to that question. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go One of the most successful duets in Christmas music history, and surely the weirdest, might never have aired if it weren't for some last-minute musical surgery. David Bowie thought the little drummer boy was all wrong for him. So when the producers of Bing Crosby's Christmas TV special asked Bowie to sing it, he refused. Just hours before he was supposed to go before the cameras, though, a team of composers and writers frantically retooled the song. They added another melody and new lyrics as a counterpoint to all those perumpa pum pums and called it Peace on Earth. Bowie liked it. More important, Bowie sang it. The result was an epic and epically bizarre recording in which 30-year-old David Bowie, the androgynous Ziggy Stardust, joined in song. Ziggy played guitar Jamming good with web and gilly And the spiders from Mars Joining him was none other than Mr. White Christmas himself, 73-year-old Bing Crosby. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas How did this almost surreal mashup of the mainstream and the avant-garde of cardigan-clad 40s-era crooner and glam rocker happen. Bing's teenage children, who were on set for the recording, recalled the interaction. The doors opened and David walked in with his wife, said Mary Crosby. They were both wearing full-length mink coats. They had matching full makeup, and their hair was bright red. We were thinking, oh my God. Who Bing's son, Nathaniel Crosby, added, It almost didn't happen. The producers told him to take the lipstick off and take the earring out. It was just incredible to see the contrast. The show's co-writer, Buzz Cohen, worked some of the intergenerational awkwardness into his script. In a little skit that precedes the singing, Crosby greets Bowie at the door of what looks like Dracula's castle, Actually, it's a set that's supposed to be Crosby's rented London home. 
The conceit is that Bowie is dropping by a friend's house and finds Crosby at home one snowy afternoon. Hello. You're the new butler. <laughs> well, it's been a long time since I've been the new anything. What's happened to uh, Hudson? I guess he's changing. Yeah, he does that a lot, doesn't he? Um... Oh, I'm David Bowie. I live down the road. Oh. Sir Percival lets me use his piano when he's not around. He's not around, is he? I can honestly say I haven't seen him, but come on in. Come in. But uh, come on in. Are you related to Sir Percival? Well, distantly, yeah. Uh... Oh, you're not the uh, poor relation from America, right? <laughs> Gee, news sure travels fast, doesn't it? I'm Bing. Oh, I'm pleased to meet you. You're the one that sings, right? Well, right or wrong, I sing either way. Oh, well, I sing too. Oh, good. Fellow co-writer Larry Grossman recalls the initial encounter. We had decided that we wanted them to do a duet of a Little Drummer Boy. And when we told Bowie about the number, he said, I won't sing that song. Uh, and we said, why? He said, I hate that song. He said, if I have to sing that song, I'm, I, I can't do the show. And he said, also, I'm doing the show because my mother loves Bing Crosby. Cohen remembers leaving the set and finding a piano in the studio's basement. We decided the best way to salvage the arrangement was to do a counter melody that would fit in between the spaces and maybe write a new bridge and see if we can sell them that. And it all happened rather rapidly. I would say within an hour we had it written and were able to present it to him again. Watching in the wings, the Crosby kids notice a transformation. They sat at the piano and David was a little nervous, Mary Crosby recalled. Now tell me, uh, you ever listen to any of the older fellas? Oh, yeah, sure. I like uh, John Lennon and the other one, with uh, Harry Nelson. Ooh, you go back that far, huh? Oh, yeah, I'm not as young as I look. <laughs> None of us is these days. Dad realized David was this amazing musician, and David realized Dad was an amazing musician. You could see them both collectively relax, and then magic was made. Bowie and Crosby recorded the duet September 11th, 1977 for Crosby's Merry Old Christmas TV special. A month later, Crosby was dead of a heart attack. The special was broadcast on CBS about a month after his death. And that was almost that. We never expected to hear about it again, Cohen said. But in the intervening years, the Bowie Crosby Peace on Earth, Little Drummer Boy, has been transformed from an oddity into a holiday chestnut. Anything in this day in history, and may all your Christmas be white.
And there you have it. By the way, this day in history on November 30th, 1977, this song aired. But we play it again and again throughout the Christmas season. And I want to bring you to a part of the song that we heard, well, one of the great music guys put together. Obviously, well, Bowie wanted to sing something different than Bing. And so they wrote a separate song. And take a listen as we get ready to cue this up. Because in an hour, these guys put this together. And it just proves sometimes, even in the arts, necessity. Well, it's the mother of invention. Take a listen. Our finest gifts we bring. Can it be years from now? Perhaps we'll see our finest days of glory. Say the day When we come Every child must be made aware Every child must be made to care Care enough for his man To give all the love that he can Song, the making of a, the story of a song, the little drummer boy, Peace on Earth, Bing Crosby, and David Bowie. Music is always bringing Americans together of every creed, ethnicity, and class. This is our American stories. Live in peace, live in peace again. Peace on earth. Can it be? Can it be? This is our American stories where we love great stories about music, sports, love, death, and business. One of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other and the world. Which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications and a modern renaissance man. And we know him best by his book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy, And here's a story from that great collection. Take it away, Carl. Today, I've got a Christmas tale for you. It's all true, almost entirely unknown, and illustrates beautifully how important personal connections are in driving effective charitable action. 
The story begins with a man named Michael Brown. Mr. Brown was a Broadway lyricist, a classic boom-and-bust profession where you might go years at a time without a substantial success and then suddenly hit it big. 1956 was a good year for Brown. He had a new hit musical under his belt, and as a result, he and his wife and their two boys were enjoying an unanticipated burst of prosperity. So they decided to share their good fortune that Christmas. They invited a close friend to join their family holiday celebration. She was a young, starving artist, a writer living nearby who was passing the Christmas season far from her home in the South. Toward the end of their family gift exchange, the Browns told their guest to retrieve an envelope off the tree. Inside was a note that read very simply, You have one year off from your job to write whatever you please. Merry Christmas. The writer's name was Harper Lee. You may recall that Harper Lee was from small-town Alabama. She grew up loving storytelling and literature, and when she decided she wanted to try to make it as a novelist, she did what many thousands of people have done before her and since. She relocated to New York City, the center of the publishing universe. But after getting to New York, she found, like many before her and since, that she was so preoccupied with paying her rent in her case by working at an airline office and a bookstore, that she had little time left over to focus on her literary craft. She was failing to make any progress on her writing and was deeply frustrated about it. Now, the Browns were good friends, and they noticed this. They could see that Harper had talents she was not able to realize. And through some very personal philanthropy, they changed the course of U.S. literature. Lee agonized over whether she should accept this extraordinarily generous and extremely personal gift. In the end, she decided she would. So with the Browns' donation in hand, Harper Lee quit her retail jobs at the bookstore and the airline office. She focused full-time on her writing, and it was during that gift year that she produced To Kill a Mockingbird. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1961 and became one of the most influential American books of all time. Now, some people might wonder, is that really philanthropy? I would say yes. Admittedly, it's a very unusual and especially intimate style of philanthropy, but it meets the classic definition, reaching out to a fellow human being who isn't meeting her God-given potential, somebody who is in danger of being passed over by life, and helping that person to a better outcome. That's philanthropy at its best. We can all be grateful for the generosity of the Brown family and very happy that Harper Lee was not run over by the hubbub in New York City, not suffocated by the demands of paying her rent, that the special qualities of imagination she applied to the details of life in small-town America got written down so her vivid perspectives on childhood and rural life and Southern society and morality could enter the subconscious of so many of us. Harper Lee discusses some of those things in this rare interview. We didn't have much money. Nobody had any money. Uh, we didn't have many toys to play with. Nothing was done for us. So the result was that we lived in our imaginations most of the time. We uh, devised things. We were readers. We, um, and then we would 
transfer everything that we had seen on the printed page to the backyard in high forms of drama. Did you never play Tarzan when you were a child, or did you ever go to the jungle or refight the Battle of Gettysburg in some form or fashion? We did. Uh, did you ever live in a tree house? Did you ever find the whole world in the branches of a chinaberry tree? In this instance, like so many cases of well-timed and well-placed personal philanthropy, it wasn't just the money that made the difference. It was the human touch, the clear statement that somebody else cares about you, believes in you, and wants to help you become your best self. I never expected that the book would sell in the first place, but I was hoping that maybe somebody might like it well enough to give me some encouragement about it, some public encouragement. Appreciate the charitable actions that lift up persons in this way every day. And if an opportunity comes along for you to practice philanthropic love and support in some way, small or large, please consider acting yourself. You might be surprised what it leads to. And what a great story from Carl Zinsmeister. And again, our partners at the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And now it's time for one of our favorites, Stephen Goldberg's Daydreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams. And not just any dude, one of our favorite dudes. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College and is the foremost expert on patriarchy and a guy who daydreams a lot. And now we bring you Steve and his latest daydream. And before it, Steve reads us his mandatory disclosure. These are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed poppied into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. <laughs> I am at a dinner with my wife and about 10 other people, all very religious. We are beginning uh, the dinner, at the beginning of dinner, a minister looks uh, at me and says, clearly giving uh, me a great honor, that uh, he would be most pleased if I would say grace. My wife blanched, suspecting that I had never heard grace uh, said, and certain that I uh, have never um, said grace. I myself I'm not exactly sanguine about the situation, never having been religious by any definition of the term. But with no way out, I am certain that humiliation is the only possible outcome, uh, I, and I resign myself to biting the bullet. So I say, thank you, dear Lord, for giving us food when so many are hungry, drink when so many are thirsty, and friends when so many are lonely. Amen. The others seem to be satisfied. Not bad at all. In fact, I'm writing it down. That was profound. That could be that could be mine tonight. Well, as always, Steve Goldberg, well, he takes it home for us. 
And this is our American stories from the sublime to the ridiculous. And that's what we love to do here on Our American Stories. Great job to the team here, the whole crew. And if you've got a story, a daydream, or anything, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and post it. And by the way, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to capture and listen to all that we do. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to a Charlie Brown Christmas special soundtrack by Vince Guaraldi. It's my little girl's favorite. It's my favorite. It's America's favorite. But it almost never happened, a Charlie Brown's Christmas special. We want to tell you that story right here on Our American Stories. Lee Mendelson is an American TV producer best known as the executive producer of the Peanuts animated specials. And by the way... When you hear the name Sparky, that's Charles Schultz's nickname. And, of course, he had this amazingly successful animated cartoon strip that ran in newspapers all over the country. But, my goodness, there had been no Charlie Brown's TV show, no animated series for the television. And here, Mendelssohn talks about how he first became interested in Charlie Brown. It's an unlikely story that starts with a Major League Baseball player. I was reading a book about Willie Mays, and being a baseball fan, uh, always, I called Charlie Einstein, who was the writer, and I said that he had written two or three books on Mays. Do you think we might be able to f- follow Willie Mays around with a camera? Maybe we can do a show. And he said he talked to Willie, and all of a sudden we had a deal to go to do. You know, Willie Mays in 1963 was an icon. Still is, but particularly then. And so we had this big hit show, and we figured we're on our way. And we sat there and sat there. Nobody called. A couple of months go by, and I'm reading Peanuts, and I see this Charlie Brown strip where he's losing his 900th baseball game. And so I said, why don't we, uh, I think I'll call him. It turns out he was in the phone book. because Let's do a documentary on, on him and on Charlie Brown. So I call him, and he had seen the Willie Mays show. He's a baseball fan, and we went up and met. And it was a great meeting, and he said, okay, let's do it. Mendelssohn goes on to describe a failed project that sparked the interest of the Coca-Cola company. So we went and did a documentary on Charles Schultz, half hour. We could only afford a minute of animation, but we put that in there, and I figured we'd sell that like this, you know. And nobody wanted it. They all liked the show, but nobody had any interest in it, so we were just sitting there. And then in 1965, in April... Time Magazine ran a cover story with the Peanuts characters. And a few weeks after that, Coca-Cola called through their agency, McCann Erickson, and they said, 
and I thought they were calling to buy the documentary. And they said, no, 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 but have you and Mr. Schultz ever thought, and Mr. Melendez, have you ever thought of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas show? And I lied, and I said, oh, absolutely, we've been thinking about it, and blah, blah, blah. This was a Thursday, and they said, well, we have to make a decision on Monday. Could you send us an outline of the show? This was the Thursday. So I called Mr. Schultz, and I called Mr. Melendez, and I said, I think I have good news and bad news. The good news is I think I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. The bad news is we have to write it tomorrow. So we all got together up in Santa Rosa and came up with an outline for the show and sent it down there on Monday, and they bought it. We learned in that American Masters series that Schultz had some ideas of his own for the Christmas special, ideas that didn't make the network suits very happy. First and foremost, there was no laugh track, something unimaginable in that era of television. (laughs) Schultz thought that the audience should be able to enjoy the show at its own pace without being cued to laugh. CBS created a version of the show with a laugh track added just in case Schultz changed his mind. Luckily, he didn't. The second big battle was waged over voiceovers. The network executives were not happy that the Schultz team had chosen to use children to do the voice acting rather than employing adults. Indeed, in this remarkable world created by Schultz, we never hear the voice of a single adult. The executives also had a problem with the jazz soundtrack by Vince Guaraldi. They thought the music would not work well for a children's program and that it distracted from the general tone. They wanted something more, well, young. Here again is TV producer Lee Mendelson on choosing Vince Guaraldi for the special. I wanted to use different kinds of music. Uh, We knew we'd use traditional Christmas music and we would use some Beethoven because Schroeder played Beethoven. But when we did the documentary, we had hired a fellow named Vince Guaraldi to do the music on the documentary and I thought it might be fun to to use some of that music on the Christmas show. And we called Vince and um, uh, he wrote an opening title song for the show and I remember I thought maybe we should put some words on it and I just wrote, scribbled some words down on an envelope. Christmas time is here, happiness and so forth and never thought much about it. And so the music became a, a mix of the, and I think the music was critical to, to its acceptance. And um, we thought of different elements about the Christmas tree and so forth and put it all down the outline. And the outline pretty much is the way the show eventually evolved. And, um, but I think that the Guaraldi music was crucial to its success because that was the first time a cartoon had used jazz, had used adult music. And that raised a, a, a certain level. And last but not least, there was one scene that really irritated the suits at CBS. If you remember, Charlie Brown brings that really ugly little tree out to the center of the stage. Everyone's despondent. And Linus comes in to save the day. The kids are bickering about the true meaning of Christmas. You remember the scene. And in this scene, what really annoyed the the suits at CBS was the reading of the Gospel according to Luke, verses 8 through 14. Let's take a listen to this scene. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. 
and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Oh, when CBS executives saw the final product, they were horrified. Again, no laugh track, a jazz soundtrack. Adults not doing the voices, kids doing it, and oh my goodness, a reading from the actual Bible. They believed the special was going to be a complete flop. Here again is TV producer Lee Mendelson on the moment he showed CBS this program. And I went back very with great fear to CBS, and I showed it to him. It was a week before it was to go on the air, and they hated it. The two top people just hated it. They said, you know, the... It's too slow, and it's very religious. In those days, that was a big deal, you know, back in the 60s. And it's not particularly fun. And I was just devastated, you know, because I, I didn't think it was, it was that good either. And the head guy there said, well, we're going to have to run it. It's scheduled, but unfortunately, you know, there probably aren't going to be any more. And then uh, they, had, they said, there's a guy from Time Magazine downstairs that wants to look at it. And they said, but we don't dare show it to him. It's, we don't like it. I said, well, it's going to be worse if you don't show it to him. So we go down, and there's a fella in there, and me, and we sit, and we watch it, and he doesn't say a word, and he gets up and leaves. So I come home absolutely with my tail between my legs, and I figure we are doomed. The half-hour special aired on Thursday, December 9, 1965, preempting the Munsters and following Gilligan's Island. To the surprise of the executives, 50% of the televisions in the United States tuned in to the first broadcast. Here... Lee Mendelson talks about the positive reaction they started getting before and after the show aired. Day before the show, Time Magazine comes out, and this fellow wrote the most glowing review you could imagine, said it should run forever, which shocked all of us. Then it goes on the air and gets like a 45 share, and in those days there were only three networks. I think we had half the United States tune in who had television. And that Monday, the CBS fellow called up and he said... Um, well, we're going to buy five, four more Charlie Brown shows, but I wanted you to know that my aunt in New Jersey didn't like it either. That was his, that was his justification. The cartoon was a critical and commercial hit. It won an Emmy and a Peabody. Linus's recitation was hailed by critic Harriet Van Horn of the New York World Telegram, who wrote, quote, Linus's reading of the story of the nativity was, quite simply, the dramatic TV highlight of the season. A Charlie Brown's Christmas is equaled only, perhaps, by the 1966 How the Grinch Stole Christmas in its popularity among young and old alike. Thank God the Grinch-like executives at CBS chose to air the special back in 1965, despite their misgivings. If it had been left to their gut instincts, we would have had one less national treasure to cherish come Christmas time. This is Our American Stories, the story of how Charlie Brown's Christmas special almost didn't happen.